host, Mike Agarbo. We've got uh, an interesting show for you today. We'll be talking uh, about some Canadian tech startups. Uh, I was at the Collision Conference in Toronto this uh, past few days, so got a chance to talk to a few up-and-coming companies, uh, including one uh, that is a ride-hailing app for women. It's called Wilma. Women drivers, women passengers. We'll also be talking with the folks over at the virtual fitting room, or, or so they call themselves the fitting room. It's... Uh, uh, I guess a technology where it allows you to create a digital avatar of yourself and for the clothing brands it allows them to actually input all their different uh, clothes pants socks dresses shirts and also the the fabrics as well so when you're trying these on virtually through uh, a website you can actually kind of see how the uh, the clothes kind of drape over your body as well kind of gives you a more accurate representation of what it uh, might uh, look like Mike Agarbo here with Gray Williams today. We got a great program. Going to look at a, a few Canadian startups that are uh, making some news right now. One which is uh, quite interesting in the the ride hailing uh, section. It's uh, called Wilma, and it's a ride hailing app just for women. So we'll be talking with uh, the CEO and one of the co-founders. We'll also be chatting with the folks over at the fitting room, and this is a, a virtual. Uh, I guess, dressing room. Uh, you're going to be able to create a digital avatar of yourself and then try on clothes uh, online. And uh, they're kind of trying to make it a little more natural. They're working with uh, clothing brands to actually input the different types of fabrics that the clothes are going to be made out of as well so that when you put them on your digital avatar, it just uh, looks a little more natural. And we're going to give you our top Chrome browser hacks uh, a lot of people use the Chrome browser. It's the Google Chrome browser, whether you're on uh, Windows uh, or Mac. And uh, we've got some uh, little tips and tricks, some hacks to, to make it uh, even better. But let's get into some of the news, uh, Gray. There's some uh, interesting stuff happening in the app and mobile world. Back a few weeks ago, we uh, talked about uh, Google's announcement of uh, their folding phone. It's just been launched uh, down in the U.S., but it looks like, Gray, that there's already reports of the uh, the folding screens breaking, which I think Samsung went through a lot of that in the early days. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I was actually, I've reached out to Pantone to see if they'll uh, help me find the color code for shocked. You could really <laughs> color me shocked on this one. Um, you know, just again, I, I, I know I'm a broken record on this, but adding moving parts to this thing that had no moving parts really doesn't seem like it's going to be a recipe for fewer repairs. Um, I mean, I, I love the idea. I love the idea. I just I haven't seen an execution yet so far where I'm like, yep, that's the folding phone for me, because all of them seem to have some issues like this, uh, at least when they start. I mean, you know, Samsung's in its, what, fourth iteration right now? So they seem to be getting it down to a fine art. I just hope that Google would have kind of like picked up uh, what, what Samsung had kind of put down. And it looks like it hasn't quite happened yet. It, it, it's tough, though, isn't it, Greg? Because, you know, obviously they, they try to test these things, uh, you know, in, in the lab, uh, you know, before they bring them to market. But it, it doesn't really get fully tested until you get it into, you know, a bunch of different consumers' hands. And, uh, you know, we saw with the early uh, Samsung uh, Galaxy Folds, uh, you know, there were a lot of issues. But, you know, I think they've actually worked out a lot of those those kinks. But it seems like Google is going to be going through the same process uh, if, if they're going to continue to go with the folding screen pixels. Those who don't learn from the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. And here we go again. Uh, moving on, uh, this is uh, interesting. 
Microsoft is uh, trying to buy uh, Activision Blizzard. You know, they've run into some regulatory and anti-competition hurdles, uh, you know, first in the European Union, now down in the U.S. Uh, a lot of documents uh, had to uh, be submitted to the, uh, the courts. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, we're, we're getting some information uh, on Sony. Uh, they're obviously not wanting Microsoft to buy uh, Activision Blizzard because they feel that it would be anti-competitive and Microsoft would use uh, the leverage to you know, not put those games onto the Sony PlayStation platform. Uh, but it, it <laughs> uh, they submitted some documents and uh, they redacted them with a black Sharpie. But I guess when people scanned the documents, they could actually see through the black Sharpie and see some of the um, uh, the revenues of like Call of Duty revenues, for example, and even the cost of developing some of the games. Yeah, so some of the information here is uh, not surprising and some of it absolutely is. You know, the um, there's some, I think, what is it? Something like uh, some players spend more than 70% of their Call of Duty time uh, of, their, of their gaming time just on Call of Duty. Um, you know, 6 million gamers spent more than 70% of their time on Call of Duty. 1 million gamers spent 100% of their time on Call of Duty. Um, I mean, I've played some Call of Duty games. I've, I've, I've beaten a few of them. I've beaten a few of them on some of the harder modes. And I can tell you, if it was 100% of my gaming time spent in Call of Duty, I would be a pretty cranky kid. But then again, I spent 100% of my time in getting in the game Destiny 2. So maybe this is a Stone's Glasshouses thing. I'm not really sure. It's interesting, uh, you know, when you look at how much it costs to make some of these games. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, uh, that was revealed, uh, there's a game called Horizon Forbidden West. Um, and it took over five years, 300 employees, and it cost $212 million to make. Uh, the Last of Us Part Two cost $220 million uh, to make with around 200 employees. It just kind of blows the mind. I mean, that's on like past movie level. Uh, money now when they're producing movies. When, when you think about it, both of these games actually offer like tens of hours of gameplay. With Horizon Forbidden West, it can actually be hundreds of hours of gameplay. So the amount of time sunk into creating it really does sort of pan out in the time that gamers are playing um, with this on the other end. It's interesting because looking at this merger, you know, uh, Microsoft did almost play, they're almost doing it to play defense. Um, they basically were looking at this. Starfield is a game that's coming later this year, and they essentially wanted to almost step in the way of Sony having access to this title. Uh, it's a single-player title, and so the idea here that um, you know Sony gamers wouldn't have this has been very upsetting. And actually, uh, one of the VPs involved has apologized since PlayStation gamers, um, you know, saying, like, we're, we're sorry, but our, our hands are kind of tight on this one. Um, it's, it's disappointing to see, you know, Microsoft has taken this sort of exclusive approach before, um, and it's just, it's frustrating to see that games that would have been destined for multi-platform possibly now are being destined for a single platform uh, as a bit of gamesmanship, if you'll pardon the, pardon the term, uh, playing with consumers as the pieces. You can't tell me if the roles were reversed, uh, if Sony was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, purchasing Activision Blizzard, that Microsoft wouldn't have the same, <laughs> same issues. You know what I mean? Well, interestingly enough, Sony did purchase Bungie, the company that does make Destiny 2, and they have pledged to continue to make content for Destiny 2 for Xbox as well. So... Uh, it's not an apples and oranges, but it's an apples and slightly different types of apple. Let's move on to another story here on the uh, app show. Uh, this is uh, something that I think uh, anyone that's using some of the uh, the Google software should be aware of. Uh, 
basically saying you you should log into your old Google accounts before they're deleted. It's kind of a, a use it or lose it uh, <laughs> with uh, Google. But uh, they're looking uh, to basically delete accounts if they haven't been used or logged into for at least two years. And so this could include everything from Google Workspace like Gmail, uh, Google Docs, uh, Google Drive, uh, and even things like Google Photos content. That's that's interesting. You know, I've set up tons of Gmail addresses in the past for like clubs and things like that. So looking at that, I'm actually going to have to go through and see what haven't I logged into in a while. I mean, it makes sense. Google's got to do a bit of housekeeping. Um, you know, they tend to take a lot of their old products and and clean those out. So it makes sense that the accounts would go to. So this apparently only applies to personal Google accounts. So if uh, you've got one through school or work, they're safe, even if you haven't touched them in years. Also, if you've got an active subscription going with uh, any of these accounts uh, that you know, you're paying for, and, you know, even if you haven't logged in uh, in over two years, you're still safe because obviously they, they want to keep taking your money. Another story that we're following uh, here is uh, Meta. Uh, Meta is the company that owns uh, Facebook and Instagram, and uh, they're trying to be a little more transparent on uh, how their algorithms uh, work when it comes to serving up content, which uh, I guess has been uh, an issue in the past, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, looking at this, uh, Facebook has had, had to do, and Meta have had to do a lot of work to convince users that the platform is, um, you know, has their best interests at heart. Um, and so this particular setup now, they're showing users essentially the system cards that cover your feed, your stories, your reels, um, and how each of the stories is chosen. There's a bit of a three-step process. So they're basically looking at all the stories that are posted, um, looking at how people have interacted with it, and then they sort of rank things. Now, I mean, this is sort of a common sense approach, but getting into more of the nitty gritty, you can start to see how certain bits of content gather steam uh, between different groups of users. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think everyone's going to go through, you know, <laughs> this list of how they do it. But uh, like you were saying, uh, you know, they they gather information, uh, you know, from uh, your Instagram content, for example, photos and reels uh, to make sure that they're abiding by, you know, the company's quality uh, and integrity rules. And then uh, their AI then looks at how engaged you are with that content and similar content uh, or interests, uh, I guess what they call input signals. And then they start ranking that content and they use that and, and the algorithms from that to then start serving up stuff uh, in your newsfeed. You notice what they started to do here, though? This used to just be called the algorithm and now it's the predictive AI algorithm. Really feels like they're trying to just capitalize on that buzzword. Uh, another uh, announcement this week. It looks like, uh, you know, we, we've talked about uh, Facebook, uh, Meta, Instagram, uh, taking down uh, news links uh, in in the feed. It looks like Google is going to remove news links in Canada as well in uh, response to the new uh, online news law, uh, Bill C-18, I guess now law. So, yeah, that, that, that's right. And so this is actually modeled after an Australian approach, um, which didn't ever actually get enacted. Like it was, it was passed as law, but didn't actually, wasn't ever enforced because Google and Facebook actually did end up reaching an agreement with the news organizations there. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, is this a negotiating tactic? Um, like, will Google and Facebook, uh, you know, come to the table and, and try to negotiate for more? I'd say stay, to, to, stay tuned to your social media or search site for more news, but looks like that's not happening. Are they winning hearts and minds doing this, though, you know, Gray? Like, I, I don't, it doesn't make me feel good about that, what they're doing. You know, it, it's, it's fascinating, like... I mean, news 
costs money to make and to you know, and do the, the journalism involved. Um, you know, when we have mass scraping of, of sites, when we have um, AI getting the, the voice and tone of authors, um, you know, the people who do the work need to be remunerated. Um, is this a bit of a heavy-handed approach? Yeah, but it seems like Google and Facebook don't listen to anything else. So, no, you know, no, they don't. Uh, we're gonna, know, as, as much as I was going to say, as much as I'm not, you know, always thrilled with how the government handles things, this one seems like they're standing up for us. We've got uh, a really fascinating guest uh, with us now. I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with some of the uh, ride-hailing services that are in Canada now. Uber, Lyft uh, would probably be uh, some of the bigger ones. Uh, but uh, there's a, a new one in town that uh, I think uh, listeners should know about. Uh, we've uh, got uh, with us right now Terry Phipps uh, from Wilma. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Mike. So what is Wilma? Uh, Wilma is uh, North America's first membership-based ride-hailing service designed to address the safety concerns for women and gender-diverse people. So simply put, we're women driving women. So think Uber for women. And where did you guys start? In Canada here? Yeah, we just uh, launched our business in London, Ontario. So we're accepting rides right now. And we're coming to Toronto in the summer. And later we'll be expanding through the United States and across Canada. The goal is to be in 158 cities in the U.S. and 12 in Canada. And really to, to help women get home safely. So, uh, I mean, there are already big players out there like the Ubers and Lyfts. Why, why does there need to be... Uh, a ride-hailing service for women? Well, it's just like kind of anything. There was already a Netflix, but Crave came along and, you know, Disney because there is different needs in the market. And women, for example, uh, have a need to feel safer. Um, unfortunately, statistically, 3% of women who get into ride-hailing um, are assaulted. Um, and that's a huge number. 3%? That's that's a lot. I know. Especially you realize, like, that's based, just Lyft alone, that's based on 30 billion, I mean, it's 30 million women based on a billion rides. Um, but uh, and even on the driver's side, 42% are assaulted, and 50% of them don't feel comfortable working at night, which is the highest income. Just Sorry, curious. how many drivers are assaulted? 42%. That's almost half. Yes, yeah. Of women drivers. Yeah. And that's so, insane. I know. That's why lots of them have gone over to, you know, delivery because uh, the bag of McDonald's won't hit on them the whole ride, yeah. you know, and, and they're, they feel safe. So if we can attract them into Wilma, they have a female in the back seat every time, and it's just a safer value proposition. Plus, we give the driver 80% of the fare versus Uber and Lyft, they get about 60%. So it's, uh, it's a really a symbiotic relationship. And the, the way the model works is it's a membership service. Like, that's really the secret sauce because we, we asked four different law firms, if we model this after a woman's gym, do we legally address the anti-discrimination hurdle? And all of them said yes. So that's why we made it a membership. So for the riders, for nine ninety nine a month, um, she gets 10% off of all of her rides. She gets a female driver every time. And we use part of that revenue to go back to the, the drivers so that she makes a, a better living wage. So it's really women helping women in the gig economy. So what are the, some of the challenges of getting this up and going? I mean, this can't be easy. Yeah. Well, um, you know, if it were easy, somebody would have done it by now, I'm sure. Um, yeah, the challenges in the, in the beginning were to raise money. So we've been raising capital, um, which has been, been pretty good so far. Um, we've raised about $1.7 million. We ended up building our own app um, because the main thing in this area is that um, safety is not just your physical safety. It's safety of your data. 
So we made sure that we brought in a PII, a personal identifying information specialist, and he's our chief solutions architect. He was the chief solutions architect for Dallas, so he wrote our entire, um, you know, like that's why we partnered with AWS because we use Amazon uh, Web Services. Yes, Amazon Web Services, exactly, and they have been fantastic. Uh, they've helped us with so many things, and I, I don't want to get super techie, but really around data security um, and making sure that everything is, you know, a double hand a handshake as far as it's encrypted in transit and in storage. So um, that's a, a big important. So pillar. kind of uh, digital safety and physical safety. One hundred percent, exactly. Yeah, and and th a lot of people ask me, um, is this just for women? So it's it is for women and gender diverse folks. So a member though can bring. Someone of any gender with them in the car. So, for but example, they need to be in the car as well. Yes, they yep. need to be in the car at the same time. So it's kind of like any belonging to a club. The the guest, you know, the member can have a guest of any gender, but the guest must get out at the same stop as the member or before. We never leave the guest alone without the member. So that's kind of how the platform works. Um, any other questions? Yeah. No. So you've launched in London, Ontario, and Canada. What What have you learned so far? Oh, I've learned that you really, uh, think anybody who hears about it thinks that this is, um, an, you know, a really smart service. But what really surprised me, we, we sort of thought one in 10 women would buy the service. We ended up finding out the one in three really would. But what was shocking was that 100% of the men we talked to uh, said they'd buy it for two to three women in their life, starting with their wife, their daughter, their mother, or an employee. And one of the men said to me, you know, if we lock our doors at night, we have insurance on our cars because hope is not a strategy. And so just think about this for every dad or husband or, you know, boyfriend or employer that wants to protect the women in their life. So that was a big surprise for me. That's uh, amazing. So you're in London, Ontario right now. Right. And uh, I guess because you're using like a cloud service like AWS, it's a little more scalable, isn't it? Exactly. Um, yeah, you needed it to be able to scale quickly. And it would take us about 10 minutes to scale to any new city. And right now, um, if anyone downloads the app during Collision, uh, they can get a free year's membership. So it's just, you know, you go to Wilma Rider on the App Store um, or Wilma Driver if you'd like to be a driver. Um, so it's it's open right now to get a free membership. So what are, what are the, my last question, what are the rates compared to like an Uber or Lyft? Yeah, they're comparable or, or better. Plus you get 10% uh, discount. Um, we haven't, uh, the surge pricing is, you know, very, uh, it's actually non-existing right now because we really just want to get riders and drivers onto the platform. Uh, so it's, it's going to be cheaper for them every time. And that's, that's the way to support the platform. And it really is a platform of safety. There's so many ways that we can go as we expand to transporting children, et cetera, because who wouldn't want to send a mom to go pick up their, you know, their six-year-old from ballet? Of course, yeah, of course. Uh, so that's that's just one of the additions that the platform will have as we as we grow. Uh, we've been talking with Terry Phipps. She's uh, one of the founders and uh, the CEO of yes. uh, Wilma, a, a ride-hailing service for women, driven by women. Uh, where can people find more information? They can go to the website, which is uh, getwilma.app. So, like, get the Wilma app, um, and you can download on Google Play or the App Store. So, thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. We've got a really cool guest with us. His name is Krill Moiseev. Uh, he is with a company called The Fitting Room. And as we spend more and more time buying stuff online, e-commerce... 
clothing is kind of that uh, big area that sometimes doesn't really lend itself well to buying online because you can't always try stuff on, but there's a solution for that. Thanks for joining us, Krill. Thank you for having me, Rick. So tell us about the fitting room. I'm fascinated about the technology that will basically allow people to try clothes on virtually. Exactly. So, you know, we're using some cutting edge piece of technology. Some terms you might have heard of, such as computer vision, machine learning, 3D programming, to really kind of make that online shopping experience very comparable to what you have in store. So we allow you to create a 3D avatar of yourself uh, by just downloading an app on your phone, putting it on a tabletop, taking a few steps back and spinning around. Just so just using your own smartphone? Just using your own smartphone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even just your front camera so you can do it by yourself, uh, just in the comfort of your own home. You do a little spin around 360 degrees and that's from that. You can actually generate a really accurate 3D body model of you. And we even get you to select your skin tone to make sure that it looks just like And how long does that take? Uh, so to actually create the avatar, we can do it in 10 seconds. By the time you, you know, put the phone in the right place, put on some tight-fitting clothing, maybe let's say three to five minutes. We try to make it really simple for the consumer. So once uh, the user customers got that avatar created, what's, what happens next? Well, from there, uh, as we partner with more and more brands, you're actually going to be able to try on garments on your favorite websites. So we actually try to create a really, really photorealistic garment that actually uses the same physics properties as the real garment would. So we actually take a small piece of the fabric, get its physics properties. How does it stretch? How does it bend? What's the elasticity? So when you put it on, it gives you a really, really good um, you know, idea of what that garment is going to look like you in the real world so you can make a better purchasing decision and don't have to deal with those returns. <laughs> no, that's interesting because, I mean, there's been some of this type of technology in the past, but it almost looks like it's like a cardboard cutout of the shirt. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like, a, two, like a 2D version of the shirt on, on an avatar. So you're saying you've got the physics of the fabric moving. Yeah, so what kind of separates our solution from some of the ones that you've seen before is that instead of trying to create, you know, just taking that front picture of you and almost doing like a virtual put-on where you hold a piece of garment on a coating and put it in front of you, we actually model the 3D garment just like so that it would interact on your, in your virtual self just like it would be on your actual self. And then, of course, you know, it gives you a much better idea of what it's actually going to look like on. Like I said, we're really trying to make your online shopping experience as close as possible to what you would get in store. So I get the customer side. That seems pretty easy. It must be difficult to get the like the online retailers on board. Like it's a bit of work for them to start inputting all their clothes into the system, I would imagine. Yes, uh, yes and no. So, I mean, the, the online returns problem is such a big cost for them right now that they're really looking for innovative solutions, which uh, ours lines up with that really, really well. We've been working very hard on our onboarding process for the brands to make it as seamless as possible. Uh, so, you know, without going into too much detail, the whole point is we're trying to streamline it easy for them so that this product can be ubiquitous and that we can offer it as many consumers as possible. So, roughly, like how long does it take for... Um the e-tailer to actually input a piece of clothing? Uh, it'll de kind of definitely vary on the complexity of the garment, but yeah. I would say anywhere between an hour and a half and four hours. But if that can help them sell more and reduce the returns, it's priceless, really. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, and if they don't do it, their competitors will be doing it, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, you know, as you as a consumer want to have the best possible experience, and you got to go to a brand that allows you to have the most frictionless shopping experience online. So, uh, you know, we're quite confident to have a really big adoption from the brands for our product. And where are you guys based? 
Uh, we are, the team is a little bit international. We're headquartered right now in Toronto. Okay. But I, so you're like Canadian. Canadian, definitely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah. And how do you scale this? Like, I mean, if you start getting some of these big e-tailers on board, I mean, you're talking thousands, tens of thousands of pieces of clothing. Yes, so this is where we're really streamlining our onboarding process. We're building in some machine learning tools into it to make it really seamless and be able to onboard really, really quickly. So that's kind of like going to be the key. Building out our technology even further is going to be the key to our scale. Yeah, so AWS is our cloud provider. Uh, in order for us to really be scaled the technology side of our solution, we need to have access to a lot of compute. Uh, AWS will provide us with great CPU that's cloud-based as well as more importantly GPU that's cloud-based. A lot of our really complex processing such as simulating the physics and creating really photorealistic renderings, uh, those are all done using GPUs and that's where AWS comes in as our partner. So that's an AWS problem, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. They help us with the scale. So you can concentrate on growing the business. Correct, 100%. Very cool. Yeah. And is, uh, when, when can we start seeing this in, in the market? Uh, so What's your goal? We're actually going uh, live with a couple of brands uh, this summer. Okay. So very, very, very soon. soon, yeah. Yes, you'll be able to actually go on a website and check out our technology. Very cool. And where can people find out more information? Uh, our website is uh, thefittingroom.tech. Uh, you can also follow on our socials. Uh, on Instagram, it's thefittingroom.tech. And you can find us on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. Mike Agarbo here with Gray Williams uh, today. Well, I want to talk about some of uh, our favorite Google Chrome hacks. Google Chrome is one of the, I think, the most popular browser out there, isn't it, Gray? Both on Windows and, and Mac? It is. And the Chromium engine actually tends to run quite a few other browsers as well. But the pure good old Chrome does have the largest market share right now. So what we want to do is uh, go through some of our favorite uh, Chrome hacks or, or tips and tricks uh, just to, I guess, make Chrome uh, a little bit better, more productive uh, for you. I think most people, they just open up the browser and, you know, search their web pages. But there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, and there's uh, a, a whole bunch here. Number one here, this was uh, interesting, and I didn't even know about this. Um, when you go into the settings of uh, Google Chrome, th this is cool. You can actually open multiple pages on startup. You can actually select a specific page. And I think, you know, people might know how to do that, but I didn't know you could actually set up a bunch of pages. Yeah, so basically get your tabs open, right? Get them set to where you want them to be, and then go into your settings and say, open with this selected set of pages. Um, it's a really great way if, you know, you get, get your email, say, for example, you're doing your schedule through like an online tool like, like Google Calendar or like Outlook Online. Um, if you open up your bank every time, if you're doing these specific set of tasks and you know you're going to these sites every time, it will refresh the page as you load up. And you'll get a fresh bit of data and you'll have all those tabs open, saving you just that little bit of time to make things a bit more efficient. Uh, this is a good one for uh, people that like to uh, multitask. Again, we're talking about uh, Chrome hacks, Google Chrome browser hacks, uh, pinning tabs to, to kind of minimize uh, the tab uh, so it displays only the icon. I use this for Gmail. It's great. It just puts the tab over right in the corner, and it's always there. It's you know just one click. I know where it's going to be, um, and does minimize it because I don't need to see the title of Gmail. It's Gmail. I, it's so funny because um, sometimes like a lot of, I'm, I've got like a lot of tabs open. And so just being able to minimize them down to an icon, I think, uh, uh, is, is very handy. Uh, this next one here is uh, something I like. I, I know a lot of users used to like to have the home button. Uh, it's not there by default, but you can bring that home button back. Yeah. 
So basically, you're going to go to your uh, the wrench icon, uh, select preferences, and under that tab, you'll check the checkbox for show home button in the toolbar. This is like a warm blanket. You know, you don't really need it. You can open up a new tab if you need it. Just that idea of being able to go home, eh, it feels good. Uh, another one here. Uh, you can actually create uh, desktop shortcuts of your favorite websites. So um, I guess if you want to pollute your desktop more <laughs> with more icons, <laughs> you know, if, if uh, you know, the... Uh, the CKNW website, for example, uh, or the the global website is uh, one of your favorite websites. You can actually create uh, an icon right on the desktop for it that you can just kind of click and, and get right to the to your business. Can I suggest getconnectedmedia.com? I think that's the best Good one. Choice. Yes. Yeah. Um, this was a cool one. This uh, this next one here, you can actually reopen a recently closed tab if. And I've done this so many times, Gray. Like I've accidentally closed uh, a browser tab down, and uh, you know sometimes it's kind of difficult to get back to where I was. Uh, but there's a uh, there's a shortcut. Yeah, so it's Control Shift T on a, on a Windows PC. It's a Command Shift T, I believe, on a Mac. Um, or you can also, I believe, you can just do Command Z on a Mac as well. Um, and so I, I know for myself, Control W or Command W on a, a PC or a Mac, respectively, will close a tab. So you can then, if you're kind of going through and zipping through and closing a bunch of tabs, close the one that you don't want to, you can then uh, undo that very, very quickly. Talking all about uh, our favorite uh, Google Chrome browser hacks. We all use internet browsers. Uh, Google Chrome is probably one of the most popular ones uh, out there. Uh, this next one, uh, you can carry your, your Chrome settings with you. Yeah, so using your Google account online, being able to save your settings and take your bookmarks with you, uh, being able to uh, save tabs, and actually synchronize through that Google account across mobile devices as well is a really handy feature. Yeah, I, I don't think... Uh, I, I actually log into my Google account, and it, it's great, right? Because I'm, I'm working on multiple computers. I got my home computer. Uh, you know, I've got my laptop at, uh, at, at work as well. Um, you know, I've got one on my uh, iPad, uh, Google Chrome browser. So being logged in, that's the cool thing, right? Like all your settings, all your, uh, your favorite bookmarks and stuff are just there. They're just automatically updated between the different uh, computers. Yeah, and you can actually see different devices that are logged in and log in and actually grab tabs from those different devices if you need to remember where you, you actually left something. Talking all about our favorite uh, Google Chrome hacks, uh, you can actually change the search engine uh, right in the the main, they call it the Omnibar, where you kind of type in web addresses and stuff. I did not know you could do this. No. So, uh, for example, you can actually change the search engine uh, by changing the address bar to search bing.com for example i don't know why you would do that because you're probably using the google chrome browser because you like google uh but you can do that with any search engine uh, that you want so you just have to type in uh your favorite search engine let's say it's bing uh in the address bar and type the keyword after and that keyword will be searched uh in in that particular search engine neat i like that i think so um you can actually resize text areas uh as well gray so I find this to be an absolutely like super useful feature. In a lot of cases, if you have a CSS issue with a website where they've uh, changed the text box where it's not quite the right size, or if you get an ad that can be in the way, uh, grabbing that bottom right-hand corner uh, and resizing the text box in such a way where you, it makes it easier to see what you're typing or just even able to enter text at all, great feature to have. I wish more browsers had this. This is uh, an interesting one. I, I don't think a lot of people 
uh, use it or, or even know about it. Google Cloud Print. I don't know if you've used that before. I haven't. What is Google Cloud Print? Uh, this is uh, something you can uh, look for under the hood options, and uh, then you can uh, click on sign into Google, uh, Google Cloud Print, and you're actually able to set up your printer account to use Google Cloud Print. So you can print documents for wherever you are um, and, and print it uh, right to your printer at home. As long that's, as, that's as really neat. yeah, as long as um, uh, that printer um, and and computer at home is connected to the internet, that's brilliant. I mean, I suppose you also need to have ink and paper, which that's my biggest problem. <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, talking all about uh, our favorite uh, Google Chrome hacks. Uh, most people using the Google Chrome uh, browser uh, for uh, doing their internet uh, surfing. Uh, this uh, next uh, one, you can uh, actually change links or tab locations. And so is this like dragging uh, tab locations back and forth within the tab bar? Yeah, yeah. So you can do that, but you can also drag one out to have a whole separate uh, browser window as well, which is handy. This is really handy if, if you've got multiple monitors. You can grab that tab and just sort of sling it over onto that other monitor. That's I, I use that all the time, yeah. Those were some of our favorite uh, Google Chrome hacks. Uh, try them out. Uh, got a little bit of time left, uh, Gray. Uh, an interesting uh, news story popped up uh, about Meta, and they are planning to let people in the European Union, the EU, actually download apps through Facebook and Facebook ads. So they're looking to compete with the, um, the Android app stores, uh, and it looks like uh, the, the Apple app stores as well. Yeah, you know... Um like file this from the lead balloon department, I think. You know, uh, Amazon actually has their own app store. Um, for, and for, for Android. Facebook, for Android, yeah. And, and so, and with the Digital Markets Act in Europe, they may actually have one for iPhone as well at some point in the future. Um, but, like, trust is really the biggest thing with these app stores. And there is one word that I do not think of when I think of Meta and think of Facebook, and that is trust. And it's like, just looking at it and thinking to myself, you know, this is this is clearly tied into ads. It's, it's focused on developers. Like, hey, developers, let us serve your app to your users. Uh, we, the company famous for stealing user data, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just <laughs> nod and smile. Everything will be okay. So this yeah, is this is a, this is a big deal. So uh, the the European Union's Digital Markets Act, uh, called the DMA, uh, expected to go into effect next spring. It, um, it says that Apple and Google are gatekeepers and it's going to require them that they open up their mobile platforms to alternative methods of downloading apps. So, you know, to your point, Gray, there's already alternative methods on the uh, the Google side. You know, obviously Google's got their Play Store, but, uh, you you know, you mentioned the, the Amazon uh, uh, App Store. So it, it looks like, uh, you know, Facebook sees an opportunity here. They're going to start with Android first. They haven't really announced anything uh, on the, the Apple side. There's not a lot of details uh, there there yet. Uh, but um, I don't know, like Facebook, they've they've got a lot of users. Uh, do, you, do you think they could make a, a go of this? Um, I mean, I think they're going to make a go of it the same way that Netflix has made a go of gaming in their app on the on uh, on you know iPhone and Android. And, and I feel like we're going to see apps, but we're going to see nothing that's going to be comparable to um, native power. And I think we're going to see um, you know APIs provided to these alternative app stores. But Apple, in no way, shape, or form, in my opinion, 
is going to give anyone access to the sandbox that their developers get to play in through the App Store. And if the European Union tries to mandate that, I think they're like Apple's going to come out swinging for user privacy and user security. Um, I don't trust third-party app stores to to do what um, you know the App Store does. Google Play Store has been a little bit more uh, liberal about uh, approving things like malware, so not super thrilled with it. But we have seen you know some things get through on on the on the Apple App Store as well, but they tend to get caught very quickly. Um, at the end of the day, like this device, your phone is it's got all of your most important that access to your bank account it's going to be your id in the and so i just you know the walled garden i think doesn't sit well with a lot of people but i would trade security for liberty on this one and i think ben franklin can <laughs> stuff it i deserve both i i i don't know i think it might be good for app developers like uh, like i said before uh facebook really has a large platform. They've got 2 billion active users. So I, I, I feel that it would be uh, a new and uh, maybe a lucrative way for these app developers to, to advertise on, on Facebook news feeds. Do you know what I mean? I think, you hit, I think you hit it on the head there. Lucrative is going to be the thing that's going to make the difference. If Facebook says to developers, 95-5 revenue split, developers will be there in droves. You know, right now it's a 30%, 70% split uh, for developers due to Apple or developers to Google in most categories. Um, there's now a, a sliding scale for your first million, I think, uh, in revenue. But looking at this, it's going to come down to money. And it's going to come down to power. If it's easy to develop for and it's secure and Facebook's offering a better deal, yeah, sure, developers are going to jump on board. If they miss any of those pieces, I think they're going to have a hard time getting people over there. It could be. Uh, you know, Google right now also allows side, lighting, uh, side loading of apps, which is more for geeky, nerdy people. But again, it just opens up that whole security and malware uh, aspect, uh, something that uh, Apple just hasn't had to, to deal with uh, up until this, uh, this point. That's all we needed, right? The upload, the download, and now the sideload. <laughs> Uh, I want to encourage you to check out our sister show as well. It's called Get Connected. Uh, it's on every Saturday across the Chorus Radio Network and, of course, podcast uh, at, as well. So uh, you can go to your favorite uh, podcast uh, app to uh, subscribe or download it on a, a weekly basis. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking to some interesting folks over at uh, Amazon Web Services about uh, the whole tech startup situation uh, in uh, Canada. So um, you'd be surprised at how many... Uh, there are. There's literally thousands and thousands. It's a huge uh, uh, growing industry here in Canada. And, and Canada is doing very well and competing very well on uh, the, the global uh, stage. So uh, we'll also be talking uh, with uh, the folks that are in charge of uh, fintech or financial tech uh, on uh, the uh, Amazon Web Services side. So uh, a lot of uh, companies uh, and apps really kind of getting into the game there as well. I want to thank uh, all the folks that helped put the program together. And of course, Gray, my co-host, we'll see you again next time.